Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker tonight, Abbot Joseph Lee, was ordained to the priesthood in Galilee and professed as a monk there. Abbot Joseph taught early Christian studies and served as academic dean of John the 23rd Ecumenical Center at Fordham University in the Bronx, New York. Uh, over a period of 18 years. He also taught at Mary Knoll Seminary and St. John's University. Abbot Joseph was managing editor, editor of Diaconia magazine and has served on various ecumenical commissions in reference to relations between Orthodox and Catholics. He is currently Abbot of Holy Cross Greek Catholic Monastery in Washington, D.C. Abbot Joseph is Professor of Historical Theology at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception, otherwise known as Dominican House of Studies. Please join me in welcoming Abbot Joseph Lee. He must be on drugs. I mean, <laughs> such excitement already. Well, I first want to thank you for coming out on a um, Sunday evening. It shows your interest and, and your fervor. It means a lot. It's support for us, a support for the church, and show that you have a concern for an orthodox vision of, of our Christianity and of our Catholicism. And thank you for greeting a crazy old man here this evening. I saw the brochure which you put out about me, and I looked at the picture, and it looks like I'm a person you take out for dinner and then bring them back to an institution. <laughs> so I'm allowed out till 9 o'clock tonight, and then... Um, a few people have said, do I want a drink? I would be dangerous. It's like they said, what did you give up for Lent? I said, um, uh, drinking. They said, what do you drink? I said, scotch on the rocks. They said, what did you give up? I said, the rocks. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of let you know where I'm coming from. A little history about myself. I'm 45 years in the classroom. It's a long time. Most of the men and women who I have taught have gone on to ministry within the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or even some other uh, denominations. At present, I'm, I'm professor of historical theology at the Dominican House of Studies, of which I had your good father deacon in class doing doctoral work with us. He's bright, he's articulate, you're blessed to have him. What's, what is historical theology? Well, I'll tell you right now that my world ends at the 8th century. <clears throat> That's my area. Not much else goes on after that. Or for me, there, there shouldn't be much going out. I spent 45 years teaching patrology, which is a study of the early fathers of the church and um, some of the early mothers of the church. Uh, these people who I teach have become my most intimate friends I talk with them, I eat with them, I vacation with them, I shower with them, I laugh and cry with them, and I love them. 
They're not remote people. They're not at all. They're eternally young. Because much of what you do now is a result of the crafty handiwork of these men and women of the first eight centuries of the holy religion. We are indebted to them. The fact you make the sign of the cross and can say there is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. That there is a Trinity. The fact that you can honor the Mother of God under the title Mother of God. You stand in church now and, and you, you say the creed, common to us. Thank God they changed it from we to I. That was correct. There was a boo-boo. It's I believe because it's a personal belief in the work of God. The fact that we have the creed, an understanding of, of Eucharist, an establishment of, of a way of life for the lay people. Monasticism, I'm going to get into this a little bit later. We say monastic, you think of some a weird person with a, with a dirty beard hanging off a cliff or reclusing themselves into a room. No, 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 no. Monasticism was a lay movement. A lay movement. As I look around tonight, who do I see in this room? Monastics. To me, you're all monastic, because monos. You've all chosen to live for God and in God. There's one common Christian vocation, that's to monasticism, but we will develop that as we go along. So um, let's go. Let's go. You're getting two for one tonight. I'm going to speak about Anthony, but he was popularized by St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius. So before I go into Anthony, I would like to read to you a little bit about Athanasius from, from my notes. And I tell you one thing, I was very intimidated about coming here this evening. Let me tell you why. I've spent 45 years teaching seminarians and religious theology. And it, be, it can become a very artificial world, a world of thoughts, thinking, doctrine, imagination. And when your good father deacon asked me to come here tonight, I said, oh my god, I'm, I'm coming to talk to real people. Not that that's not real, but it's rather esoteric or strange. So I know uh, Deacon Sabatino had some fear of me. He fears my mouth. And um, I fear it myself. And when one of the gentlemen said, would you like to have a glass of wine? I said, no, later. Things could happen. I could say things. And if it's on tape, I could go to jail. <laughs> I, I fear that. I don't like small rooms not even confessionals. So I had to rework my notes, and I did it. I sat down for 15 hours, and I said, what would I say if my mother and my father were sitting there, simple people who love God? That's you. So I'm going to speak a little bit about um, St. Athanasius. And I wrote in my notes, there are times when the dark and heavy syllables of his name could e even fill us with dread. Athanasius. You know, it's said in Greek, Athanasius, oh my God. 
Athanasius. In the history of the early church, no one was ever so implacable, so urgent in his demands upon himself, or so derisive to his enemies. There was something in him of the temper of a modern dogmatic revolutionary. Nothing stopped him. He had a mouth, and he used it. In fact, we could safely say he had a big mouth. The Emperor Julian called him hardly a man, but he looks like a little mannequin. St. Gregory of Nazianzus said he was angelic in appearance and still more angelic in mind. Which having those qualities. It's quite delightful. In a sense, we, we are speaking the truth about him this evening. He was a small and dauntless man who saved the church from a profound heresy, staying the disease almost single-handedly. And the heresy was what we call Arianism. What was Arianism? It was the AIDS virus in the church in the third century. AIDS virus. And it bit 300 bishops and only two remain orthodox or correct. To define Arianism for you, I wrote, Arianism brought Christ down to earth, making him inferior to the Father and more popular. Jesus became my friend, my buddy. I could talk to him. A few weeks ago, I was up visiting the Maris brothers in, in New York City, and they don't listen to me. They educated me, but they don't listen to me. And when I got off the elevator, they had this picture of Jesus wearing dungarees. And he has arms around a bunch of um, students, young adults. And they're walking together. And one of the brothers said to me, isn't this a wonderful poster? I said, it's heresy. And he said, why? That's because you've taken Jesus Christ and you brought him down to my level with dungarees. I, I see no divinity in him. Oh, he may be popular. But if I had a problem, an issue, a consideration, I wouldn't go to him. I want someone who can uplift me, uplift me encourage me, heal me, and sanctify me. And Arianism was this horrible disease which Jesus became uh, just like one of us. And he had a beginning in time. He wasn't eternal, but the Father, like one of us. And it sounded quite nice. This heresy was passed around by singing. There's a time when the sun was not. And it was sung in barbershops, saloons, streets, churches, and all the bishops got into it. And this started to uh, just uh, filter the entire church, pulling the Trinity apart, demeaning that the Son is co-eternal with the Father and possesses full divinity. It was a great sadness. And it was this little bishop who opened his big mouth. I wrote he was so small that his enemies called him a dwarf. He had a hooked nose, a small mouth, 
a very short reddish beard which turned up at the ends in the Egyptian fashion. And he was black. Not darkish, black. Which may have been one of the issues why he wasn't too well received by some of the fathers in the council. He was black. He had a big mouth. I'm going to keep saying this, he had a big mouth. His eyes were very small and he walked with a slight stoop because he had a hernia. But he walked gracefully as befitted a prince and a patriarch of the Holy Church. He was less than 30 when he was made Pope and Patriarch of Alexandria and he seems never to have thought of himself as a human being dedicated to human ends. He was a hammer wielded by God against heresy, a hammer. There were other fathers and mothers of, of the early church who wrote more profoundly and more beautifully, but none wrote with such a sense of authority. It was not a mealy mouth letter you got from him, or a book which he wrote in defending the incarnation, or in other works condemning heretics. heretics. He wrote with power. He wrote directly. He knew how to cut to the heart of a problem. He had poor style because he wrote quickly. He wrote in Greek. The words flowed, but the words are like lead pellets. When they hit you, they exploded. The entire target was wounded the pellet of his word and the orthodoxy of, of his belief because he had a big mouth. Something about short people, you know. <laughs> I've taught them. I was always nervous when I had a short boy in class. Whenever anything went wrong, it was him. And you challenged him and they stood right up to you. This was Athanasius. His wit was mordant so they thought. He did not often employ the weapon of sarcasm, but when he did, no one ever forgot it. He would shred you. He would shred you. Pointing his finger and jumping up and down like a, like a little mannequin or a puppet. Waving his beard, stamping his feet, like a child who didn't get what they wanted for Christmas. When Arius, his great enemy, died, he chuckled with glee, and he wrote a letter to his friend Serapion, giving all the details of how Arius died, how the heretic had talked wildly well in church. Well, if he wasn't talking wildly in church, he wouldn't have died, I guess, so be quiet in church. Arius was not. He walked up and down. He was tall, flowing hair. He was beautiful. The ladies loved him. It was the ladies who really helped spread the heresy because their husbands weren't strong enough to stand up to them. Hmm. Talk about that tonight. But poor Arius was suddenly compelled by the necessity of nature. So he withdrew to a privy where he fell headlong, dying there. Much to the glee and the delight of Arius. According to one tradition, Arius pushed them. Have to be careful. I mean, sorry, Athanasius 
pushed Arius. As for the Arians, Athanasius hated them with too great a fury to give them their proper names. The reason I like Arius, I like Athanasius, he cursed. He's the patron saint of cursing. So he has a very calling to me. Now your deacon's going to die. <laughs> what did he call the people? Well, he called them dogs, lions, hares, camelins, hydras, eels, cuttlefish, gnats, beetles, and other words. I want to know what the other words were. Because cursing was to make a person look ridiculous, pointing and jumping, because he had a big mouth. He was five times exiled from, from his own patriarchate, five times. In the end, he had the supreme joy of outliving all of his enemies. Wouldn't that be something pleasant for all of us, to put them down? So he put five emperors down, and their wives, married to them or not. But he preserved the church. It was due to him that a council was called, Nicaea, in which the bishops came together to establish orthodox theology. What do we know about Athanasius except his physical disposition? He was born in Egypt of African blood. As I said, his skin was dark. His name was Greek. But he was a person who, despite his bellicose personality, was able to pick out good people to direct him. He had good friends, supportive friends, prayerful friends. And somewhere along the line, St. Athanasius came into contact with St. Anthony. The tradition is, is that Anthony became his spiritual father, his hurunda, his jeron, his staretz. And Anthony was one of the few who could calm him down and tell him, shut your big mouth. And he did. He had obedience to holiness. We know from what we read that Athanasius said, I saw him often. I poured waters over his hands, and he loved me. He loved Anthony more than any other person as a spiritual father. The intimacy of that relationship with a person who is spiritually present to you. Something very important in our lives, I think, is to have a good spiritual direction. Now I wrote something which I hope will have some effect upon you. You come out here on, on a Sunday night, and I'm impressed. Why? Are you here? Because they feed you? Oh, well, uh, you know, there's a lot here to eat. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, there's exotic Lebanese food, grapes, you know, uh, you know, Father Frank of Ella, God forbid, a chicken or a cow would walk in here. It has to be this fasting food, but that's all right. But which of you here is not looking for something? I believe we're here for a deeper motive. I wrote, which of us does not strive for tranquility 
or an interior spiritual life. Which of us here do not want to have some type of moral perfection in our life? To understand our human desires? All of us. I'm sure many of you sitting here have theological questions, issues with your church, your priests, your pastors, the bishops, the popes, the patriarchs. What's going on? How do I sustain my life in Christ? Who do I talk to? Where do I go? What do I believe? You see, a spiritual life can only be grounded when it's doctrinal. We use the word orthodox. It's not an offensive word. It doesn't refer to some esoteric church, which maybe does not commemorate the Pope as often as they should, or maybe we commemorate the Pope too often. Orthodoxy means correct belief, correct praise. And aren't all of us here looking for an ordered, correct, prayerful life based upon the gospel? I think we're all striving for that. The answer which Athanasius and Anthony gave to us, if you want to live the best Christian life, you must be monastic. The monastic life. Living the admonitions of, of Christ is contained in, in the Sermon on the Mount or in the Beatitudes. Trying to live just simply, faithfully, and hopefully joyfully. I also wrote, the goal of Christian life is in some way to live out the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Now you would say, well, no, that's for the sisters who took their habits off. Or for monks hiding behind walls, you know, you know, mooching money off you, you know. You're getting the Christmas cards already, mail 25 bucks to the sisters, and you're going to have 600 masses offered for you. No, find a real charity. The desire to live um, a Christian life, these counsels, these wonderful counsels. And one heresy is to believe that these counsels are just for, quote, the institutional religious. They're not obligations. That was the heresy that tried to make counsels obligatory for everyone. But these counsels of living in poverty, chastity, and obedience should bestow a freedom upon us that enables us together, men and women, to accomplish outstanding works together as a family. This is the genius of, of these two foundational men. The counsels start in precisely those areas where a human being is most intensely afflicted. Afflicted by sad promptings and, and temptations. We're all tempted. No matter how old or how young we are, we're all tempted in different ways. The desire for possessions or the satisfaction we, we think they can provide us with. I'll build another barn. I'll give another house. I'll give all my money away to my, my children who don't even call me on the phone. Or we get into appetites for maybe sexual in some areas. We're rather egotistical in our self-assertion. 
And you know, somewhere along the line, I, I just stop thinking about heaven. I, I lose my focus. It's very easy to lose your focus with what's being brought in. The news, the radio, the music, the television. Things that are very suggestive and, and soul-destroying, it's just there. And what do we do about it? Or can we do anything about it? And I think most assertively and assuredly in reading Athanasius and Anthony, in some way we can claim the monasticism that holds everybody's heart in some way. In some way. You know, within our Byzantine tradition, it used to be done, and in some places they've stopped it, but when a child was baptized, the church, in her generosity, administered four sacraments. Four. Now, in dealing with the Eastern Church, either Orthodox or, or Byzantine Catholic or whatever, you say, there's, you say there's seven sacraments. We say there are at least seven. Maybe we need more grace than you people. But there are at least seven sacraments. And when a child is, is, is baptized, we administer the sacrament of, of baptism, which integrates them into the tree, the bark, the life of Christ. We then grant the child the, the sacrament of, of chrismation. It is not confirmation, it's chrismation, in which he becomes gifted. And through the gifts he is strengthened. There's a difference. He's chrismated. Then we give the baby the Holy Eucharist so they can sustain the work which is begun in them. And then if done correctly, after we've done all of these sacral activities amongst and through the child and to the child, we take the baby and a scissor and we cut the baby's hair off. We tonsure the child a monk. But the same prayer that tonsured me as a monk many, many years ago in Israel. What's the significance? Profound. The significance is that is your vocation. To live in your life whether married or single, or divorced, or alone, or disjointed. Your vocation is monos, always to be in a relationship with God. It was St. Bez of the Great who we would speak about later, is that there's only one common Christian vocation, and that's monasticism. That's something I want all of you to claim. We all live the monastic life, either at home, in monasteries, in the office, married or divorced, single or confused. That sacramental act, at least within our tradition, takes place. The baby is a monk. And then we lead the, the child around the altar. I'm not as rigid as, as good father here. If it's a boy or a girl, I take them in the sanctuary. I lead them around the altar. I hold them. I make the sign of the cross over the gospel book. And I recite or sing the hymn of Simeon. Now dismiss your servant, Lord, in peace according to your word. Then begin to live your life, being sustained by church, family, prayer, sacraments, attitudes. 
but always pondering the genius of, of your own vocation to live as monastics. So we are all together in quite a common vocation, monasticism. And this is the genius of Athanasius and Basil. In a very demonstrative way, though, The Life of Anthony, written by Athanasius, is also a projection of Athanasius's own thinking in the mind and the temperament of Anthony. But it was also a, a reality check to what had gone on in the life of Athanasius himself, a public figure with a big mouth, sometimes lacking humility, loving to get into fights, cursing frequently. What do I do with my life? Call it into check. And it was Anthony as his spiritual director who always reminded him, you are a monk. You have values. You look at things differently. At property, passions, fighting, issues, doctrine. Call yourself to, to accountability. You know, if you were to read the, the life of um, Anthony, written by Athanasius, if you read it, and I hope you will, to our culture, the figure of Anthony is startlingly uh, odd, weird, strange, off the charts, and sometimes in the writing even offensive. Aha, uh-huh, but not so. We should have a, mixed, a mixture of both admiration, puzzlement, and fascination about Anthony, and a vision of hope for the future and for now. How can I live my Christian life? That's my concern in coming here this evening. How can we live Christian life? Obviously, so I say, as monastics. When Athanasius wrote the life of, of Anthony, the, stra- the, the, the style was very strange. I spent a lot of my time using the text in class and working from the Greek. And you read Athanasius where he's hard, and nasty, compelling, uh, confronting when he's dealing with heretics. And you know something? Maybe that's the way we should be. How we often we water down our own faith. We let things go on administratively in our government. We put people into offices right now. Who are dogs, hares, camelins, hydras, eels, cuttlefish, gnats, beetles, and maybe some other words I can clue you in on later. Because we lack the cultural bravery to stand up to a person or an event which is evil. We cuddle them. Not with Athanasius. He said what had to be said. Now, reading this life of Anthony, though, all of a sudden Athanasius writes in poetry, love. His style is not violent. He almost writes like a child in love with his teacher with a youthful enthusiasm and great attachment. His whole style just changed. 
And he wrote about the man who gave him spiritual love and direction and correction. Something very essential. I made a few points to tell you about the book. The book became famous. Athanasius was just pushed by the entire Christian world to write about Anthony. Within 20 years of the death of, of Anthony, the life which Athanasius wrote had already gone to Rome, Gaul, France, Portugal, all the countries. People were fascinated with it. This crazy creature who lived in caves, fasted, prayed, offered a tremendous sense of Christian hospitality and hope, and always spoke about Jesus Christ. It just fascinated the entire Christian world. And based upon the life of, of, of Anthony, written by Athanasius, it was the first Christian classic ever written. It became a classic. And later on, it became the, the document of what would constitute a person who, who was holy. It became the scammer for the canonization of an individual, the canon. Canonization, a very simple action, you know? That, as we see if you watch EWTN, the, 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 the crowds, the waving of flags, the screaming. Canonization in the, in the early church was a very simple action. The lay people called someone holy. They recognized the holiness in the work or the activity of that person. And they went and they told the bishop, this person is holy. Maybe not a lot of miracles, a lot of joy in contact with this individual. And eventually, by the harassing of, of the bishop by the lay people, the person would be canonized. Kunon, they'd write his name in a book of those friendly to God. And then in an official liturgical action, the writing of, of, of prayers, or what we would say a trapar, the person's name was mentioned in prayer to be prayed to. And then during the service of orthos or, or matins, the icon of the person would be uncovered. And they would sing a glorification. How beautiful you are. And all the people would then come and kiss the icon. Canonization was very simple in the early church. Very local, very humble. In the, the life of, of our Anthony, we see that early on in his life, there was some stimulus or churning that he wanted to remove himself from the pressures and, and obligations of, of conventional society. Don't we all want to do that sometimes? Don't we all just want to say, I want enough. I, I just want to get out of the fray. I want to be quiet. The book tells us the trials which he endured and the contests, contests which he had to pursue in trying to live a life of virtue? Is this so remote that we have forgotten we are called to live a life of virtue? And keeping in mind the great mysteries we receive, baptism, chrismation, Eucharist and monasticism, how do we stay focused? How Anthony received instructions from other orthodox men and women. If you want to live a Christian life, Pick well a doctrinally believing friend. 
picked well. Not some fool, but someone who is living the Christian life, is believing, belongs to the church, is faithful to the church, is not living a life of confusion. Make that person your companion. And then ponder what that individual has to say. Now, where do we ponder things? Jesus told us, go into the room and shut the door. When we hear good things, ponder them. We hear enough that's bad. When you've heard good news and your belief is, is joyful, go into your room and, and savor it. Go into your room and savor it. It will strengthen you. It will strengthen you. What I'd like to go into now is a little bit of shaping your own spirituality, our spirituality, a monastic spirituality. And then the writing of, of um, Anthony by Athanasius, I'd like to just call into your mind and your attention the foundations of early Christian spirituality. Or I'd like to say maybe contemporary Christian spirituality. I wrote for a developed spiritual life. There has to be some components available. I wrote two words on the board. I hope you can see them. If you want to impress your friends at a cocktail party, but not during Lent. Use the word ascesis. I'm trying to develop in my own life a continued discipline. A continued discipline. Anthony used the word, and Athanasius martyred them. There's nothing wrong with martyrdom. That means offering up everything to the person you love most. I martyred them. You live a life of ascesis. And you also live a life of ascesis, which means you're willing to struggle. These may sound like profound words. They should be commonplace in our vocation. I'm a struggler. I will modern myself. I'm disciplined. And I'm going to keep doing it day by day. Anthony gives us some hints of what the spirituality should be like. So I'd like to share them with you this evening. Maybe almost as an examination of conscience. Could I integrate these things into my life, my struggle? Are they there already? Can I improve upon them? Can I help others? So I wrote first according to Anthony Athanasius, to live a simple Christian spiritual life, I first of all have to just be honest. Lord, here I am. This is what I look like. I want to know what you look like. And here is where Athanasius taught a very early Christian doctrine to us. Simply, God became man so man could become like God. A very simple proclamation. 
God became man so man could become like God. It's almost overwhelming. But divinity is part of me. And I am part of divinity. God became man so man could become like God. In the recent lecture three years ago of, of um, Holy Father Benedict, commenting on this, when he used the word God became man so man could become like God, he used the word God with a capital G. Not a little God. We have the capacity to become like God. We have divinity within us. Think about it. That should be something which is so ennobling, so enriching. I'm God. Not just God-like. I, I can become kati-ikon. I can become like him. I noticed some of you carried Bibles in tonight, the presentation in the book of Genesis. And he made man and woman in his own divine image and likeness. Now let me tell you something now. The image of God is within each and every one of you. You can't eradicate it. You can't throw it away. You can't give it to anybody else. God has so stamped himself with his image in you that you have the total assurance, like the Protestants would say, the blessed assurance of your own sanctification. I go to so many places and everybody's worrying about hell. Not going to go into that. That's a course called soteriology. But you can't manipulate people with a guilt machine any longer. You're made in the image of God. And at the end of time, God will always recognize that image within you, no matter how you lived or what you've done. He has to, in a sense, bring it home. But man is made in God's image and likeness. The sad thing is, I may not grow in the likeness. I have so many tools. I, I, I just become stunted. I can't grow in the likeness. But the early church was very slow to use the word sin. Not growing in, 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 in the likeness is always considered a sadness. It's a sadness. And what am I going to do about it? So again, I quote Athanasius, and he said, The glory of God is a man and woman who is fully alive. Who of us wants to be half alive, partially dead? No matter how old we are or young, there is that zest to want to live totally, to live cheerfully, to live happily, and to live honestly. And first, over and over, is to affirm the fact I was made in God's image and likeness. God became man so I could become like God. And the glory of God is when we are fully alive and are working on it. Anthony tells us, first, be honest with yourself. What you're doing, where you are, where you live. And look upon the world as good. Look upon the world as good. If you're going to have a scheduled spiritual life, 
I use the word you have to have a schedule. You're looking for balance. Try to have a consistent life of doing things which are godly. Praying. Being silent. Big in, in Anthony was avoiding difficult companionship. People who destabilize you by moving. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.